Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and we're going to be hanging out today talking about some bootstrapper news, news that is relevant to those of us who are bootstrapping or mostly bootstrapping SaaS companies. Today, we're going to talk about Twitter Spaces, the closing of Indie.bc, some Shopify App Store drama, and a few other topics. I have Tracy Osborne and Anar Volset on the show again today. Those are my two teammates with Tiny Seed. They've been on many episodes in the past. As you know, Tracy was the founder of Wedding Lovely and is now the program manager for Tiny Seed. And Anar Volset is my co-founder with Tiny Seed. He has a ton of experience in SaaS, M&A, as well as enterprise sales, cold email, along with his CS in computer science that I like to say I won't hold against him. Before we dive into that, I want to remind you that MicroConf Remote is coming up next Tuesday. If you have not purchased your ticket, microconfremote.com. I highly recommend it. It's for earlier stage folks, I'd say pre-5 or 10K MRR. But if you're anywhere from idea up to about 10K, we're going to be diving into four in-depth case studies of early stage marketing approaches that folks have used to get traction. And it'll either be founders or subject matter experts who can share numbers, thoughts, ideas, best practices, as well as some really cool opportunities to interact with fellow founders. Producer Xander has really outdone himself on this one. And there's an entire video game aspect to it where you're an avatar and you can walk around, you can walk into the venue itself, the, the auditorium. You see this visually in your browser. And then you're seeing the live stream and it's going to be me talking with these founders and going through keynote type stuff. And then you can leave and go explore a bunch of other rooms that is going to have content and other attendees. So replicating the hallway track where you can walk up to someone and, and just have a video chat with them in between talks, as well as head to different rooms that emphasize different things, whether it's education or marketing tips, it just it's all kinds of stuff. It's all kinds of fun. And, you know, again, in true microconf fashion, we don't want to run an event that's just like everyone else. And if you recall last year's microconf remote, we had segments like founders in cars getting coffee or not getting coffee in that case. I had a talk show host kind of desk set up. We were between two large potted plants, you know, just all these different sets. And it's it's because, look, we, we want this to be entertaining. We know that sitting at home is not what we'd all rather be doing. We'd rather be in, in a room together chatting. And so we are putting our creativity into these types of events to make them more interesting, more compelling, and hopefully more useful to you, th that the content sticks and resonates more as you're able to both absorb it and talk to other folks who are doing this. So again, microconfremote.com, grab your ticket, and I hope to see you there. And with that, let's dive into our Bootstrapper News Roundtable. Tracy Osborne, Anar Volset, thanks so much for joining me again on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. I gave the two of you a little introduction before I hit record here. So let's just dive into our first story, which is about Twitter spaces. So in essence, for those who've been under a rock, Twitter spaces is a, I guess you call it a beta or an early access, limited access feature in Twitter that is essentially, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but it's essentially a, it's a clubhouse, but it's in Twitter instead. So it's, yeah, it's a rip off of Trump clubhouse. You know, basically. Well, rip off is one way of saying <laughs> it. I mean, if they rolled it out last week, my guess is that it was probably in development 
potentially even before Clubhouse came about. I don't know how long Clubhouse has been around, but yeah, so it's synchronous audio. So imagine taking all the benefit of a podcast and removing all the good things about it. You need to sit there live. There's no recording. And obviously there's some benefits. People come in the audience. You can just bring them in and have a chat and such. But I don't have access to it yet. Do either of you? I don't, know. I do not. Have either of you attended a Twitter space or a clubhouse? No. I find this frustrating. I understand why these companies are making these spaces because there's this this natural, like a certain group of people have access to something like verification or only a certain amount of people can use Clubhouse or only a certain amount of people can use Twitter spaces. And so it drives up this like need. You, know, you see these other people using it and all the other people like us are going, what's going on over there? I don't have access to this. I don't, I can't like host these things. And so there's like a marketing need for it, but it frustrates me, man. Like I- Does it feel like fake FOMO? Yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to have FOMO about it and then I just get mad and then I don't want to use it. But I don't think I'm also the typical <laughs> tech user or maybe I am. Right. I don't know. We did. We actually we made this mistake, actually, when I, over a decade ago, we did Remail, which is, the, you know, an email startup. And we didn't we just let everyone in. We were like, all right, great. Come on in. <laughs> we got mentioned on TechCrunch and it just completely melted our servers and everything. So it was a horrible experience for everybody. So I'm a little bit more sympathetic to like the the staged, like letting some people see how it goes, you know, add a bit of FOMO, that sort of a thing. I actually think uh, it's been done reasonably well. I get what you mean, though. Like it's sometimes it's a bit much, but having been on the other side of it from an engineering perspective, I do have some sympathy. But I, I feel like Twitter has the resources to not do that, right? I guess since they are so big, maybe if they let everyone in. Yeah, that's what I, I think. I, I see it as Twitter being the as the, the owner of this. Like maybe Clubhouse, I don't I should have looked up how long Clubhouse has been around. So maybe that's a scaling issue on their end. But I mean, Twitter has been around for, what, 10 years now? Longer, since 2007. I feel like they're looking at Clubhouse locking it down and be like, ooh, we can lock it down too. Yeah, I see that. I mean, I guess my thing with Clubhouse is I think they want to avoid having to deal with so much spam right off the bat. And if you do it by referral only, that can help you in the early days but until you have the momentum to then go and on the back end build all the the bots and the the AI needed to help solve that. Because if they just opened it up to the world right now, even if their servers didn't melt, it would be brutal the spam and you know all that I think would be a major issue for them. Sorry for interrupting, but also I, I would actually not say it's not just for keeping out spam, but it's it's more of like a higher tier of conversations by limiting it to only to like a certain of valuable voices. They can ensure that when people join, they're like, ooh, look at all these great conversations going on rather than a lot of mediocre conversations with all the holy polloi in, inside of it. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, so I have, I have not been in Twitter spaces. There have been a few, but I mean, like one started yesterday and it's like, I have work to do. And that's the thing. If, if there were an RSS feed, of certain conversations, would I subscribe? Probably, maybe I would at least try it out. But I can't stop in the middle of my workday or I'm not going to stop and sit there and go talk about bootstrapping or whatever. If only there was some sort of technology that where you could like, you could have like a feed of things with audio and then you could listen to it as you wanted. XML, I think would be a really good yeah. approach for that. I mean, that's that's the joke I've been making with, with friends. It's like, really, are we going backwards here? This is terrestrial radio. It's just smaller, you know, it's, it's more niche. So I, I guess... I'm not a big fan of it. However, I will say producer Xander and I have talked extensively about, you know, once I have access, doing some 
some microconf stuff and doing potentially like a live stream audio event, whether it's just like a microconf on air that we do audio only, uh, because the, the chance for participation, I do see some of the benefits, right? You can call someone from the audience. I'm sure there are other benefits that I don't know about, but I mean, that, that's really the only one, right? Is like, we already do microconf on air as a live stream. It happens to be a video live stream because that's just the norm for real-time content because to do an audio live stream, is unusual, I'll say. So we do that every few weeks and we get people engaged and we get questions and that's cool. Again, the only difference I see is the ability to bring, to see someone in the audience and say, oh, they can contribute on this topic too. I recognize their name and pull them in spontaneously, so to speak. Do either of you see any other benefits that I'm missing of, of either of these platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think like certainly... Just having a live stream and then being like, yeah, it's on some website somewhere is one thing. Certainly, I think with Clubhouse and definitely with Twitter, like you have more of the network effect to the fact that it's inside these networks of things. And I mean, I keep seeing in relation to, to Clubhouse, I keep seeing people on Twitter who I know have like, you know, I don't know, 5,000 followers or something. And they come along and they're like, oh, look, I'm on Clubhouse and now I have, you know, 150,000 followers. <laughs> so they're clearly very aggressively like trying to build out like and suggesting people and building that network. And I think I do think that's a big part of the part of the appeal, because I mean, like, yeah, you could always do live streams on the Internet. That is new. It's just the more building the network and the social network and the engagement around it, I think, is, the, is sort of the innovation. Yeah, I feel like we're pushed as consumers, being that we've we watched Twitter grow and then we're watching these other social networks like Instagram grow. And I think a lot of people are, the normal people are realizing the power of being in early and building that like initial network and having that pay out over time if they can get in early enough. And so now when new social networks start, people are like, ooh, maybe this one will go big. So I'm going to put on like, try to get in big early and then they fizzle, which makes me sad. Like there's been Twitter alternatives. I think people have done that too. Like I'm not sure if that was really Mastodon, but I did know some people were like thinking that Mastodon would be the big competitor to Twitter and therefore Mastodon. Mastodon what? I've never heard of Mastodon. What is Mastodon? Yeah, exactly. It died, I think. I think it maybe it's still alive. But I do know of some people who looked at that and they're like, this could be it. And so they spend a lot of time trying to build up a network just in case. Um, and I kind of feel like that could be happening a little bit with Clubhouse. Yeah, the network effect will win, right? And that's the thing with Clubhouse is now a feature of Twitter and Twitter already has the network. So my prediction is Clubhouse will be done. I know they have this amazing valuation right now. And I say amazing, what is it, billions of dollars? But it's just, for me, it's this typical Silicon Valley FOMO investor thing of everybody wants a piece of it now because it got popular. But Twitter has the network. If Facebook were to do this, they would have the network and Clubhouse is building it from scratch. I'm on Twitter, I have 21,000 followers. When I go to Clubhouse, I believe I have like 42. <laughs> So for me, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to invest my time on Clubhouse and I'm literally waiting to have access to Twitter spaces. By the way, if you work at Twitter and you're listening to this, I would love to uh, have access to start doing a little space now and again. So um, hit me up. Yeah, use the power. Yeah. Use the no, power you have at the podcast. It'd, it'd be great. And, I'll, you know, I bring an audience with me. So yeah. it, I, I think it would be beneficial. I'm not some clown who's going to show up and, and, you know, gather four people to do it. So Rob, are you, are you, are you verified on Twitter? Is that a thing? Oh my gosh. It's a thing. I'm not. Okay. No. Hey, Tracy, did you used to be verified on Twitter? Yeah. Aynor uh, knows that I used to be. I was just complaining wound. before we jumped on the call and started recording this is that I used to be verified, but I changed my username from Lime Daring to Lime Darling, or excuse me, from Lime Daring to Tr Tracy Makes and lost verification. And so I've been in the, as I said earlier, the hoi polloi ever since. 
that was like giving Tracy a paper cut and pouring lemon juice in it. That's oh, what she like just Oh, it's like Anar's favorite side uh, pastime. <laughs> yeah, is the verified thing. <laughs> so, so prediction: Anar is Clubhouse in business or swallowed up within eighteen months? Um, eighteen months—that's a lifetime. I I still think they're around. Uh, they raised so much money. I mean, I think they raised didn't they raise like a hundred million or something insane? Yeah. So I I I still think they're they'll be around. Yeah, I do. Add video. I used to sort of think like yeah maybe. I used to think like Snapchat was just a flash in the pan, <laughs> uh, which clearly wasn't. So so I'm I'm more a little bit more bullish, I guess, than you guys. Tracy. I'm bearish because if I look at their social networks that made it big, like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know. They scale depending on the time. You can spend hours in each of these social networks or you can just like check in every five minutes every now and then and just catch up really quickly and close the app. Clubhouse doesn't really have that time scaling. I feel like it's like all or nothing. And so when the newness wears off, I feel like it's more likely to not be as engaging anymore and that participation will drop off to a point where Clubhouse might have some issues. Yep, I agree with you there. And... I think longer term Twitter spaces will probably stick around and maybe they add video and it kind of becomes another avenue to to do live streams. Oh, wait, do you think Clubhouse will bring in a Twitter like alternative? So they do have that like time scaling? <laughs> no. Do I think Clubhouse will? What do you mean bring in a Twitter alternative? So I mean, like, so if, if we go with my analogy, where oh, I see what you mean, add Twitter functionality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then you have the way of catching up really quickly, but you, you don't have that huge time effort. Do you think that Clubhouse will move into that direction? I don't I know. With $100 million, they can do whatever they want. But that seems like an odd, that seems like an odd place to go down at that point. I just think Twitter spaces will stick around. I don't love the synchronous, just almost, I want less synchronous things in my life, period. I mean, this is why we use Voxer. Right, Voxer, for those who don't know, is an asynchronous way to send audio communication. And so I can I push to talk, I can leave a five-minute Voxer, and then Tracy or Anar, it's, it's a private message. They get it, they can listen to it at their leisure, and they can 2x me or 3x me, and you know, 3x the speed, and then they can respond back. And that's not a fit for, you know, we, we still do calls when we need to, but it cuts down the need to have a bunch of back and forth in Slack, or to scale, everything's like, oh, I gotta, let's jump on a 30-minute call to discuss this. Oftentimes, you can just go back and forth with a little audio. And that's how I want my life to be, more async. Voxer is essentially calls, but without the call part, <laughs> just yeah. the voicemail. <laughs> it really is. And and when I'm off a call or when my, I, oh, I'm just done making dinner with my kids, before I sit down, you know, I'll say, hey, Tracy, I was thinking about this one thing. What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And so in any case, let's move on to our next story. Really interesting news this week, shocking news, to be honest, that Indie.vc is shutting down. Bryce Roberts posted to Medium a post titled The End of Indie, and he basically talks about, I mean, he doesn't give a ton of, of background other than to say it looks like LPs weren't as interested in this fund because Bryce runs, for those who don't know, Bryce runs two funds. One is the O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures, OATV.com. In fact, when I email Bryce, that's the domain name, you know, of his email address. And that's a very large fund, traditional venture capital, quite successful from what, what I understand. I don't have inside information there. And then Indy.vc is a Again, my understanding is a much smaller fund, and it was investing in some alternative VC. And their their terms are, let's say, more bootstrapper friendly, and you can buy back equity and and pay things back. And he has a screenshot of an email from an, an LP, a limited partner, an, an investor, potential investor in Indy.vc, 
And the screenshot says, hey, Bryce, we are out. The shift in strategy for the fund over time, for your good intentional reasons, has moved further away from the kinds of companies we are looking to have exposure to. And so he says, without the institutional support to scale the indie economy, we envision it's time to take our learnings and refocus to other strategies within the portfolio to deploy our capital. To our friends, founders, scouts, and supporters, thank you. It's been an honor to write this chapter. Maybe we'll get the band back together to take another run at the indie opportunity down the road. This came completely out of nowhere. And, you know, I, I tweeted about it that I'm, I was surprised and also, frankly, saddened that the experiment didn't work in essence. I mean, they, they funded 40 companies, so you don't, you know, you can't say nothing good came out of it. But the fact that it's shutting down only six years after it started, I think it's a bummer. And obviously kind of being, being lumped in, I mean, Tiny Seed has been lumped in with Indie.VC as this bootstrapper friendly funding and and the mission i think is overlapping but obviously tiny seeds very different in that we run the year long accelerator that our terms are quite different they're not custom terms they're really just you know kind of straightforward equity and our focus is b2b saas so there are a lot of differences between the two but i feel like i've, I've talked a, a bit about this tracy do you have of other thoughts to add on uh, indie closing down yeah I actually wasn't thinking this before the call, but when you said the, the name of their blog post, The End of Indie, it's kind of interesting that they said that says that rather than end of indie.vc. And that's a little bit yeah. saddening because I think indie.vc and why Tiny gets lumped in with them is that we are we're aiming more at that like independent bootstrapped type of world. Those kind of entrepreneurs are looking for a path other than VC or just bootstrapping. And so when it's when the blog post says end of indie and then talks about the the LPs not wanting to invest in this space. I, what I'm hoping is that it doesn't turn off people that doesn't like tell people that being an independent, like indie entrepreneur rather than say VC track entrepreneur, I think is the way to, to look at it. They don't think that that's also the end of that, you know, like, oh, people aren't going to invest in this field, you know, because we have investors. We we just raised our second fund and we've, we've been really successful in uh, getting people on board on our mission. And I just hope that that blog post doesn't read as this mission of of supporting independent entrepreneurs is doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think certainly Bryce in, in Indy was a, you know, sort of a pioneer in the space. And I, I certainly think we share the mission in terms of, I feel like in the last 10 years at least, and I, I think this is what triggered Indy.vc to, to get formed, is like the name of the game in terms of funding has become, you know, chase after unicorns. It used to be, you know, if you don't think it's going to become, you know, a billion dollar business, don't invest. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, you know, forget about a billion dollars. If it can't be $10 billion, then let's, let's just not invest. And then last I heard like a week or two ago, people were talking about, you know, hectacorns or something crazy, which is like $100 billion. You know, fundamentally, like, a key part of the thesis for TinySeed is there's value creation and there is value in uh, supporting founders who want to create businesses that aren't necessarily are successful and ambitious, but aren't necessarily wanting to be $100 billion, super famous, the face of Fortune magazine or whatever, where maybe a win is you know, if you sell for 20 or $100 million or 5 or 10, that's, that's a win for everybody, including investors. And so... So yeah, I'm sad about it. I I mean, we with Tiny Seed took a, I think a quite a different approach. Like you said, we get we get lumped in with them and and sort of similar funds reasonably often. But in a way, I actually actually think of Indie.VC and and those kinds of funds more similar to sort of revenue based financing or debt funds versus certainly what we think or at least what I think is given how early we invest and so Indie usually invested later than us. 
given how early we invest, you kind of need to be an equity investor and you need to to sort of allow, basically to, to not allow founders to buy back equity. And, you know, we get, as you guys know, we sometimes get pushback on this. Like, why can't I just buy back my equity? Like, why, why won't you be happy with 5X or, you know, 10X your money back? And for us, like, the reason is that the, the math just doesn't work out that way. And so we think that the companies that we build, yeah, like a lot of them, like what we were trying to do is to support a large number of comp- founders and companies and some of them will, won't do so well and some will do, will do well and, you know, sell for or just get to five or 10 million and some will do really, really well. But that whole mix of things, you know, that needs to be in place, I think, in order for founders to be successful, but also in order for investors to be successful. So as you see with Indie, if you can't convince investors, you know, or LPs to, to keep investing, then you're sort of dead in the water. It's, it's you know, the most founder-friendly terms in the world is just to give cash for no equity and no nothing to founders, but that doesn't provide a suitable return for investors. So, I mean, that's been the challenge for us from day one is like, how do you find that balance between founder friendliness and and suitable investor returns, given that everybody has other options to what to do with their money? You know, you could put it in crypto or S&P 500 index funds, or you could YOLO into GME options. Like there's a lot of things people can do with their money. And I think you need to find like, what is that balance? And I think we've found it. And certainly, uh, you know, I hope so, at least, I guess time will tell. But I think that balance is, is hard to strike. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem like Indy found it. Yeah, and you and I spent at least six months working on the tiny seed terms. And we looked at Indy's terms, and we came up with our own terms. I believe we had five, maybe six versions of different terms. And there was straight equity. Yeah, and some were terrible. Were really <laughs> bad. And some were way too founder-friendly in the sense of, oh, hey, investor, give us 100 grand and we'll give you 120 back in 10 years. Like, no, that doesn't work, right? And and then we had some where the fund made out like a bandit and what founder would ever in their right mind accept that, right? And and that's what we had to find is the balance where those two, in a, where the Venn diagram intersects that founders will take it and it's a good deal for them. Yeah, in some cases, they're like, they were they were maybe a decent trade-off in some situations, but they ended up like they, they would sort of preclude or stop the founder from doing certain things. Like we think a lot of the, the companies that we back will be successful without further funding after us. But we didn't want to come up with terms, which meant that, you know, if they do decide, oh, this is a bigger opportunity than I thought, I want to go after the more traditional venture track, then that they should be free to do that. And certainly some of the terms, variations we thought of really snookered founders. And, and like, in some cases, they were complicated to the point where it wasn't obvious. I'm not sure that most founders would have understood them until it was too late, like five or 10 years, you know, five years later, they're like, oh, crap, I can't do this now, you know. And, and we see that like in just in general in venture terms and stuff. You end up in a scenario where whatever terms that an early stage investor has put in is, is so weird that it ends up blowing up the cap table and, and sort of ruining the company for at least for further for the further financing. Yeah, and that's that was a big reason that we did land on equity is that it's been around for centuries. It is understood. We invest some money and we get a percentage and really that's the simplest way. All the other terms we had were like a bunch of if-then-else statements in a contract, in essence. If this happens, then this happens at this point. And it made us feel a little less comfortable. And I, I think if you you know do decide, if you ever look into funding, whether it's angel, whether it's that's kind of tiny seed bootstrapper friendly, or whether it's venture, you really need to look into these edge cases. I think to wrap up this topic, the sad news is that is that Indy has, has closed up shop and that's a bummer. The good news is before Indy, before Tiny Seed, we were bootstrapping. 
And you can still build companies without any funding. You can. Is it probably a little harder? I, I think so. Will it take you longer? Probably. But this is what MicroConf and this podcast and, and my books and just everything I've been saying since 2005 is about, is don't ask for permission to build your company. Build your company, not your slide deck. Go out and build it. Revenue is the best slide deck. That, that is another thing I've said at several talks where if you really do decide that you want to raise funding at some point, the more traction you have, the better off you do. So get in the trenches, get some revenue, get someone paying you real customers, real product, real money, and that's the way to do it. And it's still totally possible. And then if you need help along the way, it is good that there are funds like ours and you know other ones I'm sure will come along that, that can help folks who are maybe don't want to hop necessarily hop on the venture track may want to down the line. Let's move on to our next story. This was one I found on Hacker News and we will link this up in the show notes. Shopify says remove Stripe billing or get booted from their app store. We're a SaaS business currently listed on the Shopify App Store. Today, we got this stern email from Shopify's partner governance team. TLDR, don't even have Stripe as an option for Shopify users or we'll boot you. Also, back pay since January 2019. So I'm not going to read this entire uh, email. It's several paragraphs long. But in essence, if you're in the Shopify App Store, even if you have a separate SaaS app, if you have any Shopify users coming through your SaaS app, imagine if you have your own domain, drip.com, for example, and, and Shopify users using it, then they're saying that you have to go through Shopify's billing. And I want to start by saying this is no surprise to me. While it sucks, that's what Shopify is a monopoly in essence. When back in the days as Drip pivoted into e-commerce is shortly before I left, we started talking to Shopify about getting in their app store. And this was one of the big concerns I had was all of our billing engine and everything, refunds, annual pro rating, just all the complexity was, it's a custom billing engine built on Stripe and it works really well. We have credit system, overages, on and on and on. And some folks wanted to be in the Shopify app store. And that means suddenly you hand over all that. Our customer support people no longer have the ability to just provide someone with a refund. And that was a pretty major yellow flag for me on doing the integration. So I'm not surprised by this. Yes, it's a bummer. W what do you think about this, Tracy? Not the same. The hard part was because you shared the Hacker News page with me. And of course, I had to go through and read the comments. Um, so I, oh, don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, Never I shouldn't do, do that. that. <laughs> now I'm like, now my thinking is warped by all these comments. But the top comic does make a, a interesting point, which was people have been talking about Apple taking a 30% cut of folks on the, you know, who are doing payments through their Apple apps. And Shopify was the Shopify CEO was, was I think rightfully complaining about that and the loss of the open web were also having this within Shopify. So I just think that's a little disappointing. I agree with that assessment that it's just like, I wish we could have an open environment both with Apple as like Basecamp and everyone has been talking about as well, but also with Shopify. But that said, I'm kind of a pessimist when it comes to these kind of things and does not surprise me whatsoever that it's this way. Yeah, this is big platforms. This is what they do eventually, right? And this is why... Amazing step one businesses are these these Shopify apps or what are the other market? I mean, it used to be mobile, but I don't, I'm not necessarily a fan at this point since everything sells for 99 cents, it seems. But there's the Shopify app store and the Salesforce app store and whatever else we can think of of the, you know, the online ecosystems. And you can get in, Heroku is another one, right? And it's amazing to get to 5K, 10K, 20K a month relatively quickly if you rank for terms that people want to search for, if the ecosystem is big enough. Longer term, these are not great 
million dollar, multi-million dollar businesses. If that's your aspiration, this is your step one. Use that to then buy out your time and then go either either pivot this into, hey, I'm going to build another business that's very similar that isn't in the Shopify app store or go in and build that other effort because platform risk is a big deal because basically you got to do what they say. I mean, they're going and asking the original poster for 20% of revenue dating back to January 2019. So that's two years of revenue. That's insane. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. What do you think, Aynar? I mean, I'm sort of the same. I, I feel like it's not surprising that they're doing this, but I think it's not hypocritical from Toby to be all like, yeah, ragging on Apple when they're doing the same thing, if, if not worse. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, I think it was Toby who said, who's the CEO of Shopify, said, like, uh, I guess the last quarter or the quarter before, like, you know, we're expecting to see a company IPO that's built on the Shopify platform. I'm like, well... That's tricky when, when you do things like this. I mean, you know, I guess it's happened on, on some platforms before, but not a lot. I think there are some companies that are, you know, maybe have done that on mobile. Maybe some gaming things have done okay, but on a single platform, no, I don't. As an investor, like we know this, like we're slightly wary of backing things that are, you know, if you're only running on Shopify or you're only running on a specific platform, because it is a risk. It's like... They could easily decide, like, you know, the next day, it's like, oh, we're doing exactly what you're, what you're offering and it's going to be free and now you're screwed. Like, you could have a significant business that can be killed overnight by running on someone else's platform. And I think, I think that's a risk that everyone should take into consideration. Like I said, I think I, I sort, somehow doubt that a, a Shopify plugin will become, will IPO as a billion-dollar business. Yeah, one of the early questions we ask folks who apply for Tiny Seed if they are on a single platform is, what are you thinking to get around your platform risk, basically? And and usually the approach is to look at the other platforms, right, to build out into a broader e-commerce thing. Now, I have firsthand, or I guess secondhand through, you know, one of the investments that I have, an angel investment from from long ago, have seen kind of platform risk blow up and have seen a large platform just throw their weight around and be able to pretty much extortion maybe is the <laughs> it's too strong a word certainly dictate that's a good way to say it so i know the what it can happen and it doesn't happen when you're at 500k arr it happens when you're at 5 million arr you know it happens when you get to that point that you get on their radar and then they see wow why is this company making all this money on our back we want a big piece of that and that's that's usually what happens in our with your experience helping saas founders exit, right? So SaaS founders that are doing uh, basically anywhere north of a, of a million dollars, seven, seven and eight figure SaaS companies. Have you seen acquirers be wary of, of platform risk in this sense? Even if, so, let's say someone did have a Shopify app that was doing 5 million or a collection of them, would a potential acquirer be willing to pay the same multiple as they would if there was no platform risk? No. <laughs> Certainly not, no. It's th that clear, huh? Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. I mean, because they're aware of the risk. I mean, it's, you know, that's sort of obviously the case. And, and there are ways to mitigate it. But like to, to give you an idea, like I see in some cases there are things that you sort of kind of know are platform risks, but, but they're not really the same sort. Like so, for example, at least last year or two, it's been the case that like a B2B SaaS business which usually selling for some sort of an ARR multiple, gets discounted if it's a service, it's a business that serves WordPress clients, you know, exclusively. It's, it's, that's much less of a platform risk than, than Shopify or Apple because it's, you know, it's an open source thing. And like, yeah, I guess WordPress can stop you or .com can stop you from being in the plugin directory or whatever, but certainly the risk there is much lower. But yeah, like those guys are, they're taking a discount. 
to if they were you know not serving that that market and so so yeah i i think there's just many many fewer buyers who are willing to punt on an asset or certainly pay premium for an asset that's you know running on the app store or you know whatever platform we're talking about our next story is another Twitter story, which is unusual. I don't feel like Twitter ships many new features. In the past three years, have they sh- have they shipped two major features? But here we go. Space is at the top. Super follow is a way for Twitter users to charge for their tweets. It's like a subscription. So I could say, hey, if you know, I'm going to have my public Twitter feed, but if you want the juicy details, I don't know, more honesty, more transparency, whatever it is, it's the super secret sauce, then you can pay five bucks, 10 bucks a month to get this separate private feed for, for Rob Walling. Tracy, curious if you would be willing to pay. Is it is the price set at ten dollars? I should have read this, but it, can you set your own price, or is it ten dollars? I guess it's they they're showing it as four ninety nine, so they haven't clarified this. But would you pay to read anyone's tweets? Are there is there anyone that you comes to mind where you think yes, I would do this? I look at this. You know, a lot of people are making the Substack comparison. Um, I also think it's kind of like Patreon. And I feel like Patreon, there are people on Patreon, definitely not the majority, but there are people on Patreon that are using it as like a thought platform. And I am, oh gosh, I always get bullish and embarrassed wrong. I would say I am bullish on this, actually. I, I don't like it. I think I would pay for people's tweets. I think it's a smart move by Twitter. I think that with the trends between Patreon and Substack and Twitter reaching the point where it has nearly everybody, it seems, has a Twitter account now, it feels like that's a natural evolution and a better way of monetizing the platform than, say, just doing all the ridiculous advertising stuff they're doing, all the the weird Twitter ad stuff. I wouldn't want to pay for someone. I'd obviously prefer to read their tweets for free. I can see the business case for it. And I could see myself being won over by like super amazing thought leader. I give Barack Obama this was doing a lot of like thought leadership on Twitter and then decide. He needed some money to charge forty nine ninety nine. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe the book, the book sales aren't going as well as he thought and he's going to move over to Twitter. I could see myself being like, fine, take my $5 a month so I can have access to, to what you're saying. Anar. Yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't really <laughs> before the thing. I, I didn't actually know what that didn't realize they'd, they'd released it. I think it's a good move from them. You know, I, I certainly can think it opens up some some new use cases, and you know, I can see myself I can see myself paying some stuff. I mean, I guess it's been mostly used for porn, but isn't this sort of what on like super fans or OnlyFans or whatever it's called does? It's sort of like that. So, I, I think in general, it's it's uh, it's fine. I mean, why not? Like you know, I, I'm I'm just happy to see some sort of a product innovation from Twitter because it's been a long time. Yeah, me too. I'm waiting to see what some creative folks do with this, right? When I think about it in in general, I think this isn't that interesting. It's like, okay, you put up a paywall behind in, in front of some tweets. But, you know, when Patreon first came out, I kind of felt the same way. But now I see how it's used and I support probably 10 creators on Patreon. So would I support creators on Twitter where it's almost a donation model? Yes, because I do that on Patreon where I pay people just to podcast. Do you think I should set up a super follow just to do my like uh, YOLO GME uh, bet tweets on there? Would you pay for that? It could be there. I wouldn't, <laughs> but I think there are people out there who would. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I agree with you. I think on a product front, this is a good move. I think people are comparing it to Substack, but Substack is email newsletters. So I don't see how that's, I mean, this is a walled garden and Substack is is email, right? Unless I'm misunderstanding it. 
Yeah, I don't think it's the same. I have to be honest. I'm I'm quite surprised at how successful Substack has been. I have to admit, that's more surprising to me than anything else. I know. That's another one where I'm like, how, why, you could just do this with MailChimp. Like why, you know, I know they have some other features and such, but I wonder if, if long-term, I mean, it's really a v- tightly niched product almost. And I wonder what the, the reach of that can be, if it can be venture scale. Obviously, email marketing can be, but that's a really different use case than just creators. All right, our next story is actually comparing Google Cloud onboarding versus AWS onboarding, and it's a blog post on kevinslin.com. Obviously, we'll link it up in the show notes. He says at the beginning, disclaimer, I used to work at AWS and have both conscious and unconscious biases towards my former employer. But in essence, he received credits for AWS and Google Cloud, and he had to get onboarded essentially from scratch in order to redeem this, the offer, and then get access to the stuff. And in the end, his comparison is that the AWS process was completed in under a week, got all the credits and the perks right away, and access to first party support from AWS. The Google process was still ongoing after three weeks. He got credits in chunks and he's not sure what the terms are and when they renew. And the first point of contact was a sales rep now talking to a third party partner. To me, this is a bit of, you know, Amazon does tend to be, their customer services is not terrible. I tend to have decent interactions with customer service and they do have human beings working at Amazon. With Google, anytime I've needed something, it's pretty terrible uh, in terms of going to forums and such. So I would hope that Google Cloud would just be organized differently. And again, he obviously, you know, has his own bias. I have not gone through this process. But Tracy, I'm curious what your thoughts were after reading this post. I wanted to, like, again, there was a Hacker News post for this. And again, I looked at the comments. And so again... Don't do that. <laughs> I am affected by the comments that are there. But someone did make the point that it is, it's actually more about, instead of just Google Cloud versus AWS onboarding for people, it's actually for comparison before YC companies. And we kind of see this at tiny C. It is that when you set up a perk for an accelerator, like some of the people that we get perks for will have like a dedicated, dedicated rep that you can just email immediately and they give you all the answers that you need. And then there's other companies that say, oh, we'll offer a perk, but we don't really have the, you know, we're not going to also offer the infrastructure to kind of support all of that. Both of them are successful. It sounds like a lot of this is just, as someone made a point of, is that AWS has a better rep for this like YC perk. I feel like a lot of it's just like beating the horse about, oh, Google support is terrible and AWS is great. I would argue that AWS is that rep for the Y Combinator would be better than normal support for AWS. What do you think, Anar? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I think actually, but I certainly think that's right. I think one of the most frustrating things about this, like that we see with TinyC2 is that at least AWS has been around for a long time. I think that's part of what's shining through here. And they tend to be consistent with their stuff. They're like, okay, if we're going to offer you 150,000 in credits, then that's what we're going to do. Like we had the experience with one of the perks that we offer for TinySeed, where it was like, it used to be, I forget what it was. It was somebody and it was like $100,000. And then, you know, I got busy. I got a bunch of email. All of a sudden I read one of the emails from them. And they said like, yeah, we've decided to change the program a bit. And usually those things are like, you know, we changed our privacy policy. And it's like, no, we're going to do, now it's $1,500 per. 500. 500, Less. even worse. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's like, oh yeah, you, you mean you reduced it <laughs> from 100,000 to 500? And like, that's just like an email and a change? Like that's, that's you know, a bigger deal to me than, uh, than how much pain it is. Although that being said, like 
Yeah, I like AWS a lot. Like, I, I got the YC. So actually, AWS used to have a YC alumni credit too, which was nice. And I accidentally blew that. It was quite substantial. I think it was 100,000 or something. And I accidentally blew that by having like a cluster of huge instances, databases that I forgot to shut down. <laughs> and then I didn't notice because it was just eating through my credits. And all of a sudden, two or three months later, I got an email that says, hey, you owe us $13,000 <laughs> in uh, in credits. And they were good enough to be, I was like, uh, you guys can clearly tell that I haven't used this at all. This isn't you know a mistake. Could you please set my bill to zero? And they did do that, like AWS did, which... I'm not sure that everyone would have done the same. So I'm inclined to be pro AWS just for that reason alone. I've only used AWS, so I don't I don't know that I want to weigh in on the pros and cons. I'm, I've had heard people use Google Cloud and, and love it too. So it's uh, an interesting data point. As we wrap up, our last story is about the LinkedIn gig marketplace. And in essence, they are developing a freelance work marketplace that could rival fast-growing gig sites like Fiverr and Upwork. And I hadn't realized that LinkedIn acquired the assets of UpCouncil back in 2019. UpCouncil was the go-to two-sided marketplace I used to recommend people head to if they needed to find a lawyer because it was actually pretty, they vetted the, the lawyers and I had found at least one, maybe two that I'd work with, you know, back in, let's say, 2015, 16 timeframe. So, I'm a little bummed that that isn't around anymore, but I guess they acquired the assets and the founder, Matt Faustman, stuck around with LinkedIn and now they're using him to essentially build this, you know, this similar marketplace, although it's not focused on legal, it's more uh, about gig workers. Obviously, LinkedIn has, I mean, I guess they kind of have both sides of this marketplace. They definitely have folks who are looking for work who may be interested in freelance work. They have company pages, but I've always thought of them as a little eye-rolly. It's just like, oh, you need to have one so that people can say that they work for you. I mean, that's the purpose, right? I don't see a lot of companies on there beefing out their pages. And in this case, you know, maybe they would need to. So I'm curious this time, I'll start with you, Anar. What are your thoughts on the LinkedIn gig marketplace? My main thought is like, what happened to LinkedIn and Twitter? <laughs> it's like for the first time in like years and years, they're doing something new. <laughs> so I was I was surprised to see this. I don't really expect to get anything from new from LinkedIn other than a crap ton of email, which seems impossible to, to unsubscribe from in every way, shape or form. I mean, like depends on the kind of gig, I think. That's my thing. It's like, I haven't, I haven't really looked at it. Like, are we talking Fiverr type gigs here? Or are we talking more like lawyers? Like what, you know, what is the... I think it's going to be more similar to Upwork in the sense of like, because Fiverr's what? It's $5 and it's these super small things. I, but Upwork is more like, oh, I'm going to hire a freelancer maybe for this entire design project. Maybe I'll hire someone for years to be an executive assistant, a VA, you know, or whatever. And if I were LinkedIn, that's the direction I'd certainly be going. Yeah. And I, I think that makes sense. Like, because one of the issues with like Upwork and whatever is like, if someone is terrible, they can be great for a little bit and then they can be terrible. And then, yeah, if, if they're if they're really bad, you can sort of burn their ratings or whatever. But they could just start up another one and like do the same thing over and over again. Versus with LinkedIn, it's harder to to sort of to just disappear and then respawn as like five different people. So I, I certainly think there's a reputational thing that comes with the fact that sort of LinkedIn has become this like de facto online CV resume type service that that I think is is helpful in terms of reputation management. So I can see them being reasonably successful, actually. Yeah, and I am. 
I am, I think, happy to see a competitor to Upwork come about because there really isn't another big player in the game. I do like what Dan and Ian are up to. They're from the Tropical MBA and they're working on dynamitejobs.com, which it's Upwork with a twist and they're starting, I love the way, you know, it's the boots on the ground. We have a small community, we see a need and they have both sides of the market in their podcast listenership and their Dynamite Circle community. And I think that they could get traction over, it'll take years and years, right, to get big. But LinkedIn can start obviously very big because they're at scale already and they already have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of profiles. I don't even know what the numbers are, but it's it's a lot of folks. What are your thoughts here, Tracy? So my biggest criticism of LinkedIn has been uh, due to my experience of being a freelancer and a contractor for many years, going onto LinkedIn and having it being so company focused and where did you work? And so I would always say, I'm working for myself. And then I was like trying to list out the projects I was working on and it was a terrible experience. And I've always thought that LinkedIn, I wished that LinkedIn would have a better emphasis of the projects you worked on, whether that was at an employer or your own projects. So what I'm hoping with this news that they're building a gig marketplace is that there's going to be some changes to the platform that allows for better emphasis on the things that people work on and the specific focuses that they're working on and kind of better showcase like the results of the things they worked on. And so I'm optimistic. I like this news. I think I hate LinkedIn. <laughs> Honestly, I don't use it very often, regardless of the, just because of all the messaging. And I, I hope that this is, will help improve the LinkedIn platform because they've had, in my opinion, a lot of issues in terms of the way that the work is displayed. That's like leading to the, the necessary, those other startups trying to like fill that need. I feel like this is a good idea for LinkedIn to kind of build into it because they've, they've definitely been lacking in this area. Yeah, I hope they give that founder of UpCouncil a lot of say in how it's built because LinkedIn to me feels like an older, clunky product, right? And it's, uh, you know, I don't want to throw stones, but it's owned by Microsoft now. And, that, you know, in, back in the day, that's how Microsoft felt compared to compared to Apple, say. And so I think that if he has more say in, in how it gets built, because UpCouncil felt like a startup in a good way, like it had good design. And at least my memory of it was that it was a pretty well-functioning product. So if he's tied into the legacy of LinkedIn, I think it'll be a problem. But I think if he can make choices and, and build something truly from maybe first principles or from scratch, I think he'll be, he'll be better off. Tracy Osborne, thanks so much for joining me today. You are Tracy Makes on Twitter. Not verified. Yep. Not verified. Not I, was, verified. Oh, I almost got there before Anar. <laughs> I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> and Anar Volset, you are Anar Volset on Twitter. It's E-I-N-A-R-V-O-L-L-S-E-T. And we have done a first close, as Tracy mentioned earlier. We then a first close on Tiny Seeds' second fund. But if you're out there and you're thinking, you know what? I have all, all these crypto winnings and the stock market going haywire. I'd love to diversify. I'm an accredited investor. I'd love to diversify into a broad swath of early stage B2B capital efficient SaaS companies. Head to tinyc.com slash thesis to find out more about our whole investment thesis and what's unique about it and you know the unique angles that we've taken. And tinyc.com slash invest if you just want to hit up ANR directly. There's a short form where you fill out a few things, but then you can get on his calendar and talk to him more about what we're doing. Tracy and ANR, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, this is super fun. Thanks again to Tracy and Anar for joining me. If you have your own thoughts on these news stories, head to at Startups Pod, Startups Pod on Twitter. Every week we have a tweet or two, a whole thread that goes out and talks about the, the episode and shares a little audiogram and you can feel free to weigh in there. 
and respond, comment. I'm always monitoring that and can interact there as well. Would love to hear your thoughts. I'm glad you joined me again this week and I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning. Thanks so much for joining me again on the show. Hello. <laughs> Someone has Good to, to talk. Good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> cut, cut. All right. That was excellent. <laughs> Tracy, you go <laughs> first. <laughs> Take two. All right. I think this will be an excellent episode. <laughs> That's what I think. All right. Uh, <clears throat> stop laughing. <clears throat> Tracy Nainar, thanks so much for joining me this week. Tracy. Tracy's muted. Tracy, oh, what the hell are you doing? Crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs>